Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. My name is MD Hawk. I am a pre-med student in New York City. This podcast features a wide range of proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. To no further ado, let us unwind the journey of medicine and life together. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we are joined by Dr. Mohammed Rimawi, who is a board certified podiatrist with specializations in foot deformities and traumatic injuries practicing in New York City. Dr. Imawi earned his doctorate from the New York College of Podiatric Medicine. He graduated above the 90th percentile of his class and served as class president for four years. Dr. Imawi continued on to a three-year reconstructive foot and ankle surgery residency at DeKalb Medical Center and Jefferson Health. He's a published author, an accomplished lecturer, and an associate of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. He specializes in general podiatric medicine, podiatric dermatology, minimally invasive reconstructive surgery, including Binions and hammer toes. His practice ranges from routine care, foot advice, consultation, and prevention to the most complex, minimally invasive benign surgeries. For more information on the field of podiatry, you can follow Dr. Imawi at NYC Foot Doc on Instagram and TikTok. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Imawi to the end. Hello, Dr. Imawi. Thank you so much for taking your time out for this podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, how are you doing on this lovely uh, Sunday? Uh, no complaints. Today's my rest day, so I do absolutely nothing today. Okay, so I'm <laughs> loving it. That's good. Do you practice uh, six times per week? No, no. Monday through Friday. But Saturday, you know, you got to catch up on work, paperwork, housework and everything. And then Sunday, I'd like to absolutely do nothing. That is so good. I, I think that's the perfect like work life balance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love it if it was four days work, three days off or something like that. But for now, yeah, this works. No, that's good to hear. So we have a lot of directions uh, we can take this, but first I wanted to ask how you got into podiatry uh, because it is one of the esteemed alternative path to medicine compared to the traditional MDDO route. Uh, so what really sparked the interest into podiatry and becoming a foot doctor? Um, to be honest with you, I was always uh, interested in pursuing something that combined medicine with uh, sports. Uh, I was heavily into sports in high school as well as college. And uh, I knew I was going to go into the medical field. So I figured I'd do something that did both. And it, it kind of narrowed down to a few options, whether it be orthopedics, sports medicine. And then I stumbled upon the field of podiatry. And at the time, it just made sense to me. Uh, you specialize in the foot and ankle immediately. There's no uh, test to take to go into it like you would with an orthopedist. Uh, you would have to compete for that spot. Um, on top of that, uh, it was a shorter route for me. So the residency here is three years. Uh, and the debt accrued is much less than it would have been the traditional empty route. So at the time, it just made sense to pursue the field. That's really good to hear. And I think uh, you mentioning orthopedic surgery and all that, I, uh, it is something we will get into a little bit later. But for now, um, for our listeners who 
do not know about podiatry or the similarities and differences between podiatry and medical schools, how would you really describe the field? In terms of the education, it's uh, pretty similar in the first two years. You're taking all the same courses that most medical schools employ. And in fact, in some of the podiatry schools, I think they share classrooms with some of the DO students. That's how similar the first two years are. It's not until you reach your third year that it becomes more focused on the foot and ankle. So you start to take foot and ankle anatomy and things like that. Uh, you begin to do labs um, and then focus on the field from surgery, dermatology. Uh, and then after that, you would pursue a residency like every other medical field. Uh, in the case of podiatry, it's mandated that the residency you pursue has a surgery. So you have to compile a certain amount of foot and ankle cases in order to uh, meet the requirements in order to pass residency. Uh, and then after that, it's, it's basically like every other field. You know, there's private practice, there's hospital-based jobs, there's group-based jobs, multi-specialty-based jobs. It depends what your uh, interests are, really. Hmm. Do you have uh, board exams like how for medical scores, there's U.S. only? One, two. Oh, of course. Okay. We have board exams. We have a board exam, I believe, uh, after the first two years. Then we have another board exam. I want to say the fourth year. And then you, I think at the fourth year, you might have three board exams or something along the lines. This was so long ago for me that I don't really remember. But there definitely are board exams. Before you get into the third year, you have to pass the part one board exams. And then I believe in the fourth year, there are two more board exams, part two and part three. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's very extensive. So you were very accomplished in your student career through being you know, a podiatry school, um, often showing leadership and communication skills. I think in my uh, introduction to you, I mentioned class president for four years. So yeah. was your personality always catered towards having an extensive role as a leader? Or do you think it was a position that you had to kind of get used to? Um, you know, I, I served as class president in high school as well. So I had some experience with it. Uh, when you choose a role like uh, class president or any leadership role, you have to really do a balancing act, right? So a lot of times people step into these roles, they really don't know how to use the responsibilities that are given to them. Uh, when you go into a role like class president, you realize that you are basically a servant to the, your classmates' needs. And you have to remember that constantly. You're not above them. You're not their leader. You're nothing like that. You're just a mere representative of their needs and wants to the administration. Uh, and I think constantly remembering that uh, led me to be reelected uh, four years straight. Keeping the actual people in mind is is incredible. And you, I think there's a lot of uh, skills that are needed to really hone in the cube that is leadership or the cube that is, you know, representing your people. And it comes with good communication skills, coherence, execution. What would you say is, was the driving factor and what really helps you to adjust to this role? Uh, the driving factor, I just felt like there was a lot of things that we could have improved uh, in my class uh, or actually within the school that I wanted to touch upon. Um, the schooling process for us was really rigorous in comparison to the other podiatry schools. We had about two to three tests every week for two semesters straight, you know, and that's pretty daunting. You find yourself just constantly studying for the next exam. You're not really grasping the knowledge. You're just mm -hmm. memorizing it and getting ready for this next test, whether it be Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Um, so there were some elements like that. This is just one example that I felt like I 
could be in a position to change that. And that is something we did end up changing. Uh, other things I really wanted to touch on was we had, and I'm sure in all the medical schools, they have this education committees in which, you know, you have a couple of classmates who represent the class in certain subjects, whether it be advocating for, you know, extra credit or uh, questioning certain answers on an exam, things like that. Uh, I wanted to be responsible for putting the people uh, who are best fit for these positions in these roles. Uh, whereas, you know, sometimes people will try to hook up their buddies and friends to, uh, you know, uh, touch up on their resume. Whereas I did not do that at all by any means. I put people who were best fit for the jobs in these positions, and I think it paid off well. I'd like to think my classmates uh, appreciated that, and therefore continuously being elected uh, definitely was the reciprocating factor. So I was very happy about that. So you mentioned change, uh, and change is very hard to come by, especially when I think uh, New York College of Podiatric Medicine, I think it was either the first or the second like oldest um, mm-hmm. podiatric institution in like the U.S., right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't all perfect. There were some things I just didn't accomplish. Uh, there were certain things um, I, I still remember. Uh, we went to school in a pretty bad neighborhood. It was in uh, Harlem on East 125th. And there were a couple of students or uh, more than a couple of students who used to dorm by. But it was about eight blocks away. Now, the school would offer transportation at nighttime. So uh, students can go into the school van and go home. This way, they don't have to walk the neighborhood at night, especially after sunset. Um, my, my thing was trying to advocate for transportation in the morning as well, because uh, if anybody knows, if you want to get to school early, the sun doesn't necessarily have to be out either. So it's just as dangerous. Uh, yeah. It didn't work. It didn't work. I, I hate to say I failed, but it put my neck on the line for that and even got up to the school president. And he's the one that had to face to face tell me no. But there are other things that we did accomplish. Uh, For instance, the changing of the rigorous exam scheduling uh, was something we did accomplish. So I was very happy about that. And little little wins along the way as well. But uh, yeah, you win some, you lose some, but uh, you have to make the effort regardless. So you mentioned failure, and uh, I think it's a good way to segue into my next question. Um, And that's catered towards that you have teacher-like tendencies. What I mean by that is you're very reflective on your personal life, which is something I've um, seen. You like to really tell the truth. And I believe something you said recently in in one of your posts is, uh, quote, the truth is success is nothing more than a road filled with failures. Uh, With social media especially, we like to see the rose petals in everyone's lives. So (laughs) it's good to be truthful. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So with that said, you have had failures. And what would you say is your favorite failure or do you happen to have a favorite failure that taught you a lot? You know, the, the truth is, and I'm glad you harped upon that because one of my biggest uh, MOs with social media is to give people a realistic expectation of what's to come. You know, I, I'm, I really can't stand the people who paint this image that uh, their life is complete perfection, uh, especially when you get to my point in, in my career, you know, these people. So, you know, the, the posts they put up are just extremely unreflective of what's really going on. Um, so I'm glad someone noticed that. But if failure is never something you you want to happen, right? Especially in our fields in medicine, uh, we can't accept failure. You know, we're used to being the best or getting great grades, whether it be in elementary, junior high, high school, college, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't have made it this far. So anytime you go through a failing situation, it hurts. And uh, unfortunately, we dwell on that a lot. It can affect our, our mental well-being as well. 
you know, one of my failures that I think taught me the most was uh, my freshman year in podiatry school. Now, I had graduated with a business degree, so I wasn't around a lot of science classes. I just took the bare minimum to get in. Um, and there's a lot of unwritten rules in the medical community that I just I, I didn't know, one of which was, you know, people just don't share their grades. They don't share their MCAT grade. They don't share their class grades. I, I didn't know this. I came from the business world where everybody was kind of transparent with certain things. Um, so when we took our first histology exam, uh, there was about only five people who received the A grade. And I was one of them. And when people would ask me how I did on the exam, I was pretty transparent about it. You know, I got an A. but when uh, I would ask for their grade, they would say, oh, I did fine. You know, and I was like, well, fine isn't really a grade, but OK, thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. What I didn't know was that, put, yeah, that put a target on my back. I did not know this at all. So there was one night I was studying in a study room and uh, I had all my notes on my desk. I had everything on my desk. I had my iPad, everything. And I stepped out for a snack and I left everything on the desk because, again, it's, it's a professional school. The, I couldn't imagine someone stealing anything. Oh, wow. Okay. So when I came back to, yeah, when I came back to the study room, everything in terms of value was there, monetary value, my iPad, my phone, nothing was taken uh, except my notes. All my notes were missing. Oh, my God. Uh, um, so this was two days before the exam. And you can imagine my panic. Uh, needless to say, I failed that exam. It was, yeah, it was the first and only failure of my academic career. And I remember being very down on myself. I started to think that maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm just not fit to be in this sort of environment. And it was actually my mother's conversation that got me through it. You know, she told me, okay, you failed the test. So what, you know, what's, what's the worst that can happen? You fail the class. What's the worst that can happen after that? You fail the semester. So what you'll repeat it. And if you fail school, so what you'll find another profession. And, you know, I just remember that conversation. I was like, ah, there's no way I'm failing. You know, if this lady believes in me to this point, then I, I should believe in myself. Uh, I ended that semester on the dean's list and I graduated every semester on the dean's list as well. So, so I still remember that failure particularly because for the simple fact I didn't let it get me down, right? I could have easily just said, oh, wow. you know. But at the, at the end of the day, I didn't let it change who I was. I was still very transparent with my grades, with everybody. <laughs> it didn't matter who it was. If you asked for something, I gave it to you. If you wanted notes, I didn't care. And you know what that did is it attracted people who were similar to you, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're a certain way or you have a certain persona and you're transparent and you're very open and, you know, you have well intentions, you find that over time, people who are the same will come your circle. Whereas people who are very mischievous or, you know, they're snakes or gunners, they hang out with other gunners. So it's, it's funny to see that play out over the course of four years in podiatry school. But back to your original question, I would say it's not a favor failure, but it's a failure that taught me a lot going forward. Wow. The main thing is you hear about, you know, sabotage being a thing and uh, prestigious institutions like Harvard or whatever. But you would imagine when you go into the more professional setting and you're going to graduate school, everyone should have the... The, I guess the maturity, right, to to really just do things in their own pace. And it just it's just mind boggling to hear that sabotage still exists to some extent. Yeah, I don't judge the person who took them, you know, uh, I'm sure they weren't in the right state of mind. Maybe they were scared, right? This is someone probably who failed the first exam and couldn't afford to fail two exams, right? When you're in medical school, you know, if you fail one, then fail two, you're pretty much setting yourself up failure for this class. 
So I'm guessing they did it out of desperation. Uh, no judgment on that part, but little did they know if they just asked me, I would have gave it to them, you know, but uh, yeah. it is what it is. What's done is done. You mentioned calling your mother. Do you consult her on a regular basis? Is this not like really? A- I never, I never did. No, not really. To be honest with you, it was, I don't know why. I guess I was just so upset that she was the first person that came to mind. Yeah. I'd like to take this opportunity to flash into the present. Sure. Uh, you kind of, what kind of uh, patient cases or surgical interventions are very common in your practice? Yeah, you know, it, podiatry is very interesting because you're going to see a variety of cases. It's it's very seldom that you see someone who does just one type of surgery all their lives. Uh, anybody with a foot or ankle issue is going to walk into your office. So you have to be prepared. So uh, a lot of my cases are a mix of elective surgery from bunions, hammer toes, to more uh, traumatic cases, fractures, dislocations, things like that, sports medicine. Um, And again, podiatry is very unique because it's not like one niche where you're seeing the same type of case over and over again. I I would say it's a mix. So you specialize in minimally invasive procedures like bunions and hammer toes uh, for bunions and hammer toes. So are these surgeries mostly functional or can they be cosmetic as well? Most of the times people, when they ask for MIS or minimally invasive surgery, is purely cosmetic, okay? Uh, I tend to give patients both options. I tell them, hey, these are the options. We can do this minimally invasive, here are the pros and cons, or we can do this the traditional, uh, more open procedure. Uh, And I kind of let the patient weigh in on which decision or which route they would like to go through. There's no wrong answer, but uh, yeah, I think when you explain to the patient uh, the whole picture, they better understand what it is going forward. I always tell my patients surgery is a team, right? Like I can do the operation for you, but once it's done, I have to tag you in. You have to be compliant with not getting it wet, not walking on it, things of that nature. So I I try to educate my patient as much as I can on the procedures, the risks, the benefits of all options before I even go into surgery. I I find that this is probably the best way. Perfect, yeah, I mean, transparency is key. You said you obviously work with athletes because I believe even sprained ankles are one of the most common injuries in athletes. Um, Yeah. So do you have a different consultation with them considering they have to be back on track and physical as soon as possible? Yeah. You know, athletes are very unique patients to treat. And the thing is, no two athletes are the same. You're not going to treat a 300-pound linebacker the same way you treat a 160-pound point guard, right? Um, But with athletes, you kind of have to beat into their heads that the goal is uh, longevity, right? Like the goal shouldn't be, what am I going to do tomorrow? The goal is I want to be healthy for my, the rest of my career. And the biggest mistake you can make is rushing people back into activity before they're healed. So I, I still treat them the same way I would treat the normal pop population going through injury. Okay. There are certain scenarios where maybe you might be more aggressive with athletes, uh, like Achilles ruptures and things like that. The more aggressive protocol with athletes tends to be the rehab phase, right? So now they're healed. How do we get them back 100% before they get on the the field, the court, or wherever uh, their specialty lies? And that you have to call in your uh, colleagues in physical therapy. With athletes, I work pretty much hand in hand with the physical therapists in my neighborhood Hmm. uh, because I need them. Right. I I need them. You know, I can, I can diagnose the patient. I can treat the patient, but when it comes to the rehabilitation aspect of it and prevention of the injury from rehabbing, I need uh, my physical therapist to come and play. So they, they play a big role in my practice. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, it's it seems like there's a whole net of communication that is involved with a lot of parties. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is also a good time to talk about the crossover with orthopedic foot and ankle surgeons because you yourself, you do surgery. Do you happen to work with any orthopedics? No. When I was in residency, we worked with orthopedics almost every day. I mean, the, the relationship there was pretty much open. Uh, it was respected both ways, um, whether it be ankle cases, tibial plafond cases. Uh, they didn't seem to mind having podiatry on board. Here in New York, the relationship isn't as uh, strong. Um, orthopedics very much so don't like the idea of podiatrists doing ankle cases because they see it as taking away from their own profession or even revenue. Um, so it's, it's a very complicated dynamic here in New York. It's not the same way everywhere in the United States, but New York particularly tends to be one of the worst ones. Do you think it's because of like the rising supply and demand yeah. issues? Because I'm, I feel like that's what with a lot of specialties in New York City or in other big cities is that you have a lot of doctors who want to be in the city. But then since so many doctors want to be in it, there's a lot of competition and it gets dicey. Yeah, it, get, it becomes saturated. Sure. But luckily, New York is a high traffic area, so everybody has enough to survive. Unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, that changed a lot and a lot of practices went under and had to shut down. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's multifactorial. I'm sure they don't want us taking away their patients. I'm sure, you know, they want to keep as many surgeries as they can to themselves and things like that. I'm more than confident to say that we're very well versed in foot and ankle surgery and I have no issues performing them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame the relationship here in New York, but hopefully it'll change with time. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, that seems to be the best case scenario. You genuinely love what you do. I think it, like your passion just uh, speaks for itself. It's definitely there through all the posts that you shared. There's a lot of extensive just like knowledge and a lot of scans. And I think I even recall reading one of your posts with fun facts. And it said something like, uh, quote, like, did you know that 25% of all your bones are in your feet? I imagine it's the same scenario when you're talking to patients. You want to have them understand their feet and the complexity and the role they play in supporting mobility, things like that. So would you say that is one of the reasons your patients' gratifications are so high? Oh, yeah. I So I tell patients, I say the same exact thing. And if any patients listening to this, they'll know. I always tell patients, listen, I'm a big nerd. And I'm going to explain <laughs> this from my, my nerd perspective. So I tell patients, hey, you know, if they have plantar fasciitis, uh, there is a ligament-like structure that starts at your heel and goes all the way to the tips of the toes. This ligament-like structure is very neglected. And I give an analogy. Can you imagine uh, using your arm constantly every single day for many years without ever stretching or doing anything to your arm? Eventually, it catches up. So it's the same thing in the foot. We take 10,000 steps a day. We never think to stretch our foot. We never think to massage it or give it the relief it may need. We wear flats, heels, and all types of vans and converses that affect it. So um, yeah, I explain to patients from top to beginning, I want them to understand what's happening. I feel like when they understand what's happening, they're better equipped to treat it as well. It's so far so good. You know, sometimes it can get a little uh, too much for certain patients. So you have to uh, basically simplify it a little bit further. But yeah, I, I do try to explain it as much as I can. That's that's so good. I mean, you definitely build trust with patients by doing that. 
even to like go further one of your posts that over the years you have kept every card and foot themed gift that you have ever received yeah, uh, yeah they're a constant reminder of why you love what you do i think it highlights how like how much you just value a patient's well-being so that's incredible 100 you know that i that is actually true that's not just for social media i keep any gift anything anybody gives me I'm relatively thin, so a lot of times people give me food, so I kind of post that. Um, everybody gives me sweets and, and sugar cookies and everything, but uh, I do keep everything because, listen, I'd love to say everything is perfect, but it's not. You're, most of my patients are, are very happy with the care I give, but when you care so much about the well-being, just one patient's negative remarks can ruin your day. So it's nice to keep these things because they do remind you that, hey, you know, don't let this one person beat you down because look, a great majority of people are very happy with you. So it does help. And I, I appreciate everybody who gives me something. That's incredible. So I have a question. How can us future doctors, PAs, nurses improve our patient communication skills if you had to pinpoint to one key skill? Oh, I, I would say empathy is the biggest thing, right? Uh, putting yourself in their shoes, all right? It's easy for doctors to become mechanical, right? You see the same thing uh, every day. You kind of just throw them away. You're like, okay, you have an inflammation of this tendon. Go home. You'll be fine. Just give it a couple weeks. But you have to realize to this patient who's been using their foot and ankle for their whole life, uh, some change or alteration in it is quite concerning. You have to put yourself in their shoes. There are things that are very benign that come to my office, like fungal nails, okay? Patient will have fungal nails, but they'll be very, very distressed about it, very so much so. Now, it could be easy for me to say, hey, listen, just uh, you're going to put some topical treatment, oral medication, laser therapy, whatever it may be, and just give it time. It'll go away. But you can't do that. You have to really uh, empathize with the patient. Let them know, like, hey, I understand your concerns. I hear your concerns. This is what we're going to do moving forward, okay? Um, I think patients appreciate that. And I, it's tough because we live in an environment or we work in an environment now where PAs, NPs, MDs, DOs, they have to be see such a robust amount of patients in such a short time. So sometimes it's not that you're a bad person. You just don't have the time to sit there and empathize with the patient as much as you'd like. But uh, as much as we can, I think we have to show that that human side of us, okay? And understand that one day we're patients too. So we would want the same uh, respect. Yeah, efficiency is incredible, but there's obviously drawbacks to it, um, especially when you're working within a, within a structured system where it's like, okay, every visit is can only be a certain amount of time. Exactly. So that's very tough when they're, you know, and I've heard hospital-based jobs tell practitioners, you have to see a patient every seven minutes to make this work. And it's very hard to be a, a caring doctor in yeah. seven minutes. And that's why when I go to these institutions, I don't, I'm not upset at the doctor because I know, I know it's not their fault. But for patients, they don't understand. They don't know that. Why, why would they know that? You know, when they come into an office, they expect to get, you know, their 15, 20 minutes. They expect you to hear all their concerns and try to answer them the best you can. Unfortunately, when we're in a system that may not allow that, and uh, I think it falls on the doctor all the time, but in reality, you know, I know, and anybody in this profession knows it's not really our fault. We try our best here. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, uh, issue, but I think 
that's a talk for another time. But um, sure. yeah, I'd like to segue into your personal life just a little bit. I know that you like to write. Uh, you are featured in many magazines. You're a featured author. So what got you into writing? And might I say you're very thorough in your Instagram posts as well. Um, you know, I, th- I started writing to myself, just writing in my notes. You know, I have an iPhone to have the notes. So I would just write things and it was like kind of therapeutic. You just put what you think out there and you just let it go. I just used to leave it in my notes and never do anything. Um, and then when I started my private practice, uh, a physical therapist who I still work with said, you know, you should make a page and share this. And I never thought of it, but uh, I did it and it got uh, good responses. So I haven't stopped since. But yeah, I think it, it's funny because whenever you have a thought process, it's like, let, let's use this example. Uh, you're in a classroom and a teacher says something and you really want to ask this teacher about what they just said, but you're afraid of, you know, looking stupid mm-hmm. or this is a bad question. But little do you know, I'm sure half the class is thinking the same thing. Right. Uh, it's the same thing with writing or putting up a post. You know, you may think, oh, I don't want anybody to think I'm weak. But when you put it out there, you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot of people that feel the same exact way. Um, and it kind of just uh, transformed from that. And in terms of getting onto the magazine panels, you know, you write for one reporter, that one reporter then gives you your name and information to another reporter. And now you become a person who they always reach out to. And it kind of just happened over time. But uh, yeah, writing is cool. I think uh, I think everybody should try to experiment with it. Yeah, I mean, especially what you said, journaling, uh, just keeping down notes of of your thoughts i think it substantializes what you're thinking and just puts it down into something that can be expressed elsewhere yeah and sometimes you know i'll put stuff in my notes and i'll go through them i just put like a sentence i don't even write anything i just put a sentence and then i'll come back to it a different time and go oh that's what i was thinking at this time Mm -hmm. you know so um yeah i don't do it it helps i like it uh i don't think i'll stop (laughs) (laughs) no uh it's definitely helping a lot of people Now, unfortunately, I think we are near the end of the podcast. Uh, However, as per the title of the podcast, Doctors In, let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark. We do this with almost uh, all of our doctors. So we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors In to rest for lunch. Now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, asks you to share one quote or piece of advice that he can frame on on his wall. What would that piece of advice be? It can be something you live your life by, for example, a principle or an ideology. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I would have to steal a quote my father told me when I was in residence. He was uh, very overworked, very tired. And, uh, you know, he just told me something very simple. He said, you know, Muhammad, do what you have to do now. So later on, you can do what you want to do. And, uh, you know, every time I'm a little distressed or uh, overworked, I just think of that quote, like, okay, I'm doing what I have to do now, and it's going to pay off later on. And every step of the way in my career, that quote has proved to be correct, you know, because even though, you know, I'm still working hard, it's nowhere near what I've already sacrificed. So every step of the way gets a little easier. So when you find yourself overwhelmed, whether it be in school or residency or starting off in a new job, just remind yourself you're doing what you have to do now so that later on you can appreciate the fruits of your labor. Yeah, yeah. It's like always ask, uh, what does my future self need me to do now? Am I using my time to best uh, serve him or her? Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, yeah I like it. Exactly. 
Exactly. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rimawi. We really appreciate you taking your time out for this. It's been incredible. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Um, a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. See you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.